I, I just felt that something was wrong, but I didn't know what. And so I went to see a doctor actually in 2016. And she basically, I always say, diagnosed me as fat. Um, if you lose weight, you will feel better. But what they were overlooking, I think, is that I had gained weight because of the condition. So I had lost a significant amount of weight and then gained it all back within six months. And that was because my heart was malfunctioning. And so fluid had begun pooling all over my body. Beyond Ourselves is a podcast where I, Taylor Camille, share stories by those living a life fully and beyond any stigma or perceived limitations a health condition may have on their day-to-day lives. For season one of this series, we are highlighting women of color and more often, Black women whose health needs are frequently looked over and stories seldom shared. Today, we are speaking with Yvette Dion. Yvette is an author and editor-in-chief at Bitch Magazine. I really have to say that securing Yvette was very aspirational for me. I kind of scope out her Twitter a lot, and I had come across her articles on Zora, an extension of Medium, that talked about what Black women needed to know about heart disease. She includes a stat in her article that notes that 49% of black women over the age of 20 have heart diseases and that cardiovascular diseases kill nearly 50,000 black women every year. It's a really alarming statistic and we talk about how sometimes diseases like heart disease can often be pigeonholed on older people but Yvette herself was diagnosed in her 20s. And she thinks a lot of the delay of her diagnosis is because many doctors don't expect young people to experience these things, but it happens. So the article was a tipping point. I knew I had to reach out to her, even though she has a large following. I started to watch her a little more closely and she was tweeting a lot about, you know, different doctor's appointments and seeing a new cardiologist. And I thought that she'd be a really great person to speak with about her health. I'm happy I took the leap to reach out to her. I think her voice is really pivotal in sharing information about our health, and I hope that you enjoy our conversation. My name is Yvette Dion. I'm a Black feminist culture journalist and critic. I currently serve as the editor-in-chief of Bitch Media. And by happenstance, I am also an author now, and I was diagnosed with cardiomyopathy in May 2019. I'm a native New Yorker from Queens, and I realized that New York was draining the life out of me, (laughs) literally. Mm -hmm. I had a literary agent, but I couldn't even get to formulate a book proposal because it was just nonstop running all the time. And I realized Mm -hmm. that in order for me to do the work that I actually want to do, I need to make literal space for it. And so slowing down, leaving New York, coming to Denver really provided that for me. Yeah. So you got your diagnosis in Denver? Yes, I was diagnosed in Denver. Okay. And you're pretty vocal online, but how would you describe heart disease? I know it's a wide umbrella in which cardiomyopathy sits under, but how would you, in so many words, describe it? So my particular condition, cardiomyopathy, is essentially the left ventricle of the heart. It pumps blood throughout your body. So the Mm -hmm. average person, their heart pumps between 
55 and 75 percent of the blood through their bodies my left ventricle had thickened to the point that my heart wasn't beating a normal beat and it also was not beating out the amount of blood that it was supposed to so my heart by the time that i caught my cardiomyopathy was pumping about 16 percent of what it was supposed to pump now i recently discovered um, that my right side of my heart my right ventricle is also not functioning correctly and that side really deals a lot with blood pressure. And mm-hmm. so I've discovered that the right side, mostly due to the left side malfunctioning, that the right side is also starting to malfunction as well. Oh, no. So is it the same sort of, it's also considered cardiomyopathy on that other side? Yes. So it's it's now right ventricle cardiomyopathy. Got it. And so the treatment is just pretty much the standard or the same for both? Um, a little different. So the left side is treated with a really healthy medication regimen. Every person takes a different cocktail of medications, but I currently take five medications together, um, split between the day and the night. But the right side really is different because it can't be treated with medication. And so they really have to find out what the underlying cause is for the right side to fail In my case, they think it may be like a a pulmonary hypertension, but figuring out Mm. what is causing that hypertension is the journey that I'm on now. So the right side is a little more difficult because, you know, it it, it doesn't turn around the way the left side does where, you know, the last time I had a full ultrasound of my heart, my left side was working at about 45% or low normal, which is mostly Mm -hmm. due to medication and like sticking really closely to liquid restrictions and sodium restrictions, the right side is just going to require a different level of care in order for it to turn around. Mm -hmm. So what were your symptoms or what situation led to your diagnosis? Did you feel like, you know, something was wrong, you weren't in tune with your body or was it a surprise? I would say that it was somewhat of a surprise because my symptoms weren't new. So Mm. I had known since at least 2016 that I just didn't feel like myself. That's the way that I've always described it. I was really, really, really tired, like more tired than I ever been in my life. I could barely walk. Like if I walked from my front door to the subway station, it would feel like I had run three miles. I was Mm. really swollen. Like my ankles were very swollen. I, I just felt that something was wrong, but I didn't know what. And so I went to see a doctor actually in 2016. And she basically, I always say, diagnosed me as fat. Um, If you lose weight, you will feel better. But what they were overlooking, I think, is that I had gained weight because of the condition. So I had lost a significant amount of weight and then gained it all back within six months. And that was because my heart was malfunctioning. And so fluid had begun pooling all over my body. So what actually sent me to the doctor was I thought I was having an asthma attack. So I went for a routine, you know, they give you a professional grade, they call it albuterol, but a professional grade medication to open your lungs up if you're in the throes Mm. of an asthma attack. And they Mm -hmm. did it and my lungs wouldn't open up. And that's when they realized that there was something else wrong. And most likely it was the heart. Oh, that's so scary. It was terrifying. And how old were you at that time? I was 29. Oh, wow. And had you known anyone else in your family that had 
cardiomyopathy or any other heart condition? Not to my knowledge. I knew that I had a grandmother who died when I was, I believe, 10 years old, who had a host of different medical issues, including a heart-related problem. I'm unsure of what her diagnosis was. So other than that, I wasn't wholly familiar in my family line of anyone who had had this sort of heart-related problem. Mm -hmm. And so in diagnosis, what were some of the things that they told you once they finally pinned down, like, okay, not asthma, not this, but cardiomyopathy? What was kind of the... The next step, what was your lifestyle change or things that they told you, you know, no more of this? Yeah, my whole, my entire life changed, to be honest. My entire life changed overnight. Mm-hmm. I, when they called me to tell me, I, they, they were very vague because I hadn't yet gone to see a cardiologist. So they were very mm-hmm. vague and they were, you know, we think it's like the thickening of the, of the heart muscle. And I'm like, what does any of this mean? So I was Googling <laughs> and everything that I Googled said, like you are in heart failure. So my first instinct was to panic because when I hear heart failure, I'm thinking like I'm on death's door. I don't know if I'm going to make it. I need to get my affairs in order. Like this is it for me. Once I went in to see a cardiologist, I realized that this is manageable. And there are a few things, a few reasons why in my case. The first being that I don't have congestive heart failure, which is an entirely different beast and is in many respects terminal for many people. I'm Mm -hmm. grateful that I have a heart failure caused by a medication that I was taking that is reversible. But in order Mm -hmm. to even get to a place where I could feel better, like my cardiologist was very upfront that everything in my life needed to change. So I was put on a really strict sodium restriction. So I can only go below a certain milligram of sodium every day. I can only have 60 ounces of liquid a day. Any liquid, water, doesn't matter, 60 ounces and that's it. I have to take my medications at the same time every day in order to just increase it in your body and your body becomes accustomed to it. I went to the doctor basically bi-weekly for six or seven months. It was really an overnight change. They were very clear that I had to sleep eight hours a day. I had to walk at least 20 to 25 minutes every day in order to just make sure that blood was circulating through my body. I have to weigh myself every day and take my blood pressure every day. Oh my gosh. And so everything literally changed for me overnight. Yeah. How would you, I mean, you gave a lot of examples there, but how would you describe your style of life before diagnosis? I mean, you were in New York You said you were very stressed and kind of on the go. I was a straight up workaholic before, before my diagnosis. (laughs) Just to put this in context, when I was diagnosed, I was already an editor in chief and I was working on two books at the same time. So I had sold two books back to back. And so I was working on the two books, working. So I would essentially work eight to 10 hours a day, sometimes longer, sometimes 12 hours, and then write for five to six hours. So I wasn't sleeping. I was very isolated from my friends at that time because I was so busy. I didn't get a chance to like catch up with my friends or be present with my family. I was missing birthdays and holidays and just everything. My entire focus was work. And being diagnosed changed all of that for me because 
you know, my whole family really went on the journey with me so I wouldn't be by myself. So my whole family changed its diet, which wow. was mind blowing to me, but really helpful because I stuck to it because they stuck to it. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. really have alternative options. And then beyond that, you know, because I worked so much, I didn't really prioritize myself. So I would sleep five hours and get up and do it all over again for nine, 10 months at a time and just work my way to, okay, I'm going to take a week vacation. If I take that week long vacation, I'm good. Now I have to build in breaks for myself day by day. Like every Mm -hmm. single day I have to take a break, especially as my body has adjusted to medications and, you know, they increase and decrease and will put you on this and take you off this and put you on this. I've really had to give myself a lot of grace in order to get through a lot of the fluctuations that I've experienced in my body over the last year. Yeah, that's real. It's, it's hard to like stop and Mm -hmm. just assess (laughs) what's going on. It's Mm -hmm. so much easier. I think that's what, you know, this time has brought a lot of people. You just have to sit with yourself. You don't have anything to distract you from whatever is really in front of you for the most part. And so I think it's important to take that time. And we, I'm sure a lot of us take that for granted, for sure. Agreed. Agreed. And it, it made me more, you know, I, I felt at the beginning, I used to say all the time, like my body has failed me. Like I'm 29 years old. I should have all of the energy in the world to do all of the things I want to do. And it's made me realize that like, no matter what has gone on, like my body has stuck it out. Like I'm still here because my body alerts me every time something is wrong. Or if a medication is not working, I know because my body tells me. So it's really changed even the way that I listen to myself and listen to my symptoms. And and really, I say, save my own life. Yeah, truly. Because the doctor who was labeling you fat definitely wasn't trying. trying. (laughs) Was trying to kill me. Yeah. So what have you, when you look for doctors now, like you just came from a new cardiologist, what do you look for in in doing your research or just background checking? What do you look for to make sure this person is going to be on your side and go the extra mile? Yeah. So this time I, I actually got really fortunate because my new cardiologist was recommended to me by a family friend who is also this cardiologist patient. And so because I've seen what he has gone through, I won't reveal his whole medical history, but he has been on a really long journey through multiple diagnoses. And this doctor has stuck with him and kept him here. It gave me a lot of confidence that this could be the cardiologist who really brings me through this leg of the journey. But in general, when I'm looking for a doctor It's really important to me, like during the very first interaction with that doctor, that they are open and willing to answer questions, that they are not just forcing their will, that they are willing to pivot as needed, that they genuinely Mm -hmm. seem to care. That when I say I don't feel well, that they take that into account and say, okay, what is it that's not feeling well? Let's fix it, opposed Mm -hmm. to kind of kicking the can down the road. So I I pay attention to doctors who are really receptive. I pay attention to doctors who are really responsive. I'm always looking for a doctor who is willing to listen to what I'm saying instead of just forcing their diagnosis or their medication regimen or whatever it is on me. I'm always looking for a partnership instead of this kind of unfair power dynamic. Right. 
Yeah. I think it's hard because I remember growing up, my mom would be in doctor's office and she would just, you know, rattle off everything for me. <laughs> and as yep. we get older, it's like, okay, you need to be accountable. You need to have like all of your stuff ready to go because a lot of doctors aren't going to be interested in helping investigate what could or should be wrong or, you know, right. what should be the diagnosis. Exactly. So. You have to learn to advocate for yourself, which is something that I, you know, prior to being diagnosed with cardiomyopathy, like two months before that, I had had a myomectomy to remove fibroids. And that, mm-hmm. that experience is what taught me how to advocate for myself because I knew I had had fibroid removal surgery before. I knew I had a recurrence of fibroids. I knew the treatment plan and the doctor just was not hearing me out at all. And like put me on a year long journey toward getting the fibroids removed. And so it's important that all people know, like when you go to the doctor, like you are your own best advocate and you have to push for what you believe is right for yourself and your body. Yeah, definitely. Speaking of the fibroids, you wrote a couple articles for Zora, Mm -hmm. the what no one tells black women about fibroids and then what no one tells black women about heart disease. And I mean, it's obvious to us, but why do you find that this information is so essential for Black women in particular? And in addition to that, how do you find comfort in being so candid about the things that you've experienced firsthand from updates on your doctor's appointments to just even everyday frustrations? Yeah. So, well, one, I think it's important that I am a Black woman. And so I'm always on the side of advocating for Black women and teaching Black women to advocate for themselves. And that's especially important in the medical sense because Black women overall are not believed when it comes to pain. Um, They're not Mm -hmm. believed when it comes to saying like something is wrong here. They are overlooked Mm -hmm. and dismissed and doctors treat Black women as if they don't know themselves, as if they can't be a steward of their own health. And so I use my experiences to really highlight the ways in which the medical system often fails Black women, but also the ways in which we can take that power back for ourselves. And so I'm Mm -hmm. not going to say that I am ever comfortable, per se, sharing about a doctor's Mm -hmm. appointment or a physician. Mm -hmm. In fact, it makes me deeply uncomfortable. But I think Mm -hmm. that it's important advocacy work because it allows Black women to see that I can also do that. Like I am not extraordinary or have something that's so special that I'm getting better treatment than say Serena Williams, whose doctor didn't believe her when she said that she felt like she had a blood clot. But what I'm hoping is that I can be a part of kind of a wealth of information that Black women are receiving about how to navigate uh, medical experiences in a way that preserves their dignity and saves their life. Yeah. And I think that's huge because it's, it's weird, you know, social media is so strange, but I always thought it was strange when people are in the hospital and like post pictures of themselves like hooked up to, you know, IVs and all of that stuff. I think it's important to remove the veil. Yes. But like you said, in a way that gives it dignity that it's not like show offy or, you know, just sympathy, pleading, but something that gives you strength in in the position that you're in and gives you information. Um, Right. 
Right. Yeah. And I think that, that kind of breaks down um, the barriers because my hope is that if I am sharing about my symptoms, particularly, especially being so young, I think a large part of the reason why I was overlooked, particularly when it comes to my heart, is because I was so young. People right. are not going to assume that what is afflicting me is the same that that's afflicting someone who is 50, right? Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. my hope is that I can kind of break down, by using my experience, break down those barriers so that no matter what age you are or gender you are or ethnicity you are, you are able to get a doctor who holistically looks at all of your symptoms and makes the correct diagnosis. Because had that doctor who was not my doctor, it was just someone who I was just seeing that day because my doctor was not in. But had that doctor not said, wait a minute, let's pause. Something else is wrong and we need to figure out what else is wrong. I would not be here. And so it really is a matter of life or death. Yeah. Yeah, truly is. Well, I commend you for stepping outside of your comfort zone. You make it look like you're, it's at ease for sure. No, 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 not at all. It sends me into panic attacks many days, but I know that it's necessary. (laughs) It is so necessary. It's hard for us to be like, okay, is it really something wrong or Mm -hmm. am I bugging? So yeah. But something I found poignant in your article, given the current climate, I used to work at Refinery29 and all of these. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I had a little little tirade on the Black Eyed R29 hashtag this past week, feels mm-hmm. like months, whatever. But something in your article was that um, a woman, Vanessa Taylor, said, you know, I had to work harder because I was a Black woman in predominantly white spaces. And I wasn't, like you said, giving myself time to decompress, giving myself time to manage my stress. And that's kind of what brought about her heart condition. So I don't know where I'm going with that, but I just thought that that was super interesting that we don't even think about these daily triggers that can be affecting our health or that can be, yeah, killing us, literally killing yeah. us. It's not just a microaggression or, you know, it's it's these larger things that we have to heal from that may seem small, may not seem co- like overtly racist, but still is eating at our bodies. Yeah. And so, yeah, that just gave me pause when I when I read that. Sure. And I think part of that too is, you know, it's it's really is large scale trauma, not even mm-hmm. just, you know, being a black person in a predominantly white space, but also being a black person in predominantly white space, especially in media and watching people be laid off, no mm-hmm. job security, feeling as if if I leave here, where else can I go? Because there is nowhere else to go. All mm-hmm. of that takes a toll over time. And I think, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things I've been publicly advocating for is for Refinery29 and these other companies to provide like wide scale free therapy. Like every person who has experienced this should get therapy because it's going to be like those experiences are so formative that they will Mm -hmm. shape in many respects the rest of your career. And Mm -hmm. so people need the space with a professional to work through that stuff. Because it is eating at us and it takes a mental toll. It takes an emotional toll. I believe it takes a physical toll. And that's the reason why there are so many, you know, I spoke to five people for that Zora article, two of which didn't make it in, but five people for that article, all of Mm -hmm. which have been diagnosed with a heart disease before their 50th birthday. 
that is saying something and it's not just about you know what you eat or do you exercise enough or what neighborhood you live in per se it is much more about the experiences that are shaped predominantly by white people in our workplaces yeah yeah what are some of the things you do at bitch to make sure that your workplace is not a haven for these experiences that you know can cause such stress for your employees yeah so because you know, I, I became an editor-in-chief when I was 28. And so I always approached it from feeling like an underdog in some respects, which is odd because For a two-year-old sure. Black editor-in-chief should not be an underdog. But I approached it as a needing to always prove myself. And so mm-hmm. because, like, I couldn't afford to make a mistake because I'm the first Black. But because of that, it also made me very attuned to the experiences of my staff. So one of the things that I have really tried to employ is that you cannot do this work if you are not mentally, emotionally, and physically healthy. So I encourage my staff to take time off, to literally, I don't care if we're in the middle of something, if you are having a bad day, take off. Take off mm-hmm. for a week, take off for three weeks to the point that like, I know that the world is in such disarray right now that we're just taking a long weekend. Like my team is just, we're shutting our section down where will be no editorial for a Friday and a Monday. And we're just taking a long weekend because we need it. Not so mm-hmm. much that we work so hard that we deserve it. I think that framing is very capitalist, but yeah. if you say that, that, you have to break, that you have to put the whole person first, I think it makes a a huge difference in just the way that we are able to do the work. You know, one of the things that I I talk to all of my staff one-on-one once a week is we literally look at their to-do list and take things off. That's too Mm. much stuff. Are you staying within 40 hours? If you are not staying within 40 hours, what is it going to take to get you into 40 hours? And what can I take off your plate to make that happen? If that means we Mm -hmm. have to kill stories, if that means we have to push deadlines, if that means that we shut down the office in order to make sure that you are building time in, then that's what we're going to do. Because my biggest fear always is people burning out, you Mm -hmm. know? And then- I mean, since I've I've been at Bitch, and my team is really small within a, a broader organization, but I've purposely only hired women of color, both of whom are queer women of color, both of whom I trust. I tell them all the time that I trust your instincts and I trust mm-hmm. what you think is best here is what is going to happen. And I give mm-hmm. them agency over their work. Of course, mm-hmm. like nothing goes up without me seeing it. Like no magazine goes out and I don't see it. But I trust that if I hand something off to you that you can execute it. And I trust that your vision is the vision. And so I Mm -hmm. I try to really be there. I'm an editor in chief. People know that. But really be more hands off and really allow people to step into their work. And Mm -hmm. the last thing I will say there that's really important to me as just a manager is not just talking about day-to-day work but setting goals and not just goals for not page view goals or, you know, but do you want to write a book? Do you have a benchmark for when you want to write a book? How can we Mm -hmm. rearrange your schedule to make space for you to write a book proposal? Or Mm -hmm. 
do you want to write a long form story once a quarter? Okay, what do we need to take off your plate to make that happen? So not only are they meeting their job description, but they are able to use this job as a formative experience to build out a career for themselves. That's really important to me too. Right. Tangible things. So if you ever you walk away with, you know, you yes. kind of just feel less less empty than just churning things out for the sake of churning. Right. Exactly. That you're proud of your work. When people are proud mm-hmm. of their work, it really shows, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. In every, everything that they put out. And I think it was interesting to hear you say, you know, take the time, even if it's just you're feeling off that day. And it's like, yeah, you have to take the time before you burn out, not yes. after you're already burned. <laughs> That's too exactly. late. Exactly. <laughs> Preemptively taking time off. And that has been a process. You know, like I had yeah. to burn out myself to realize this is not healthy and we cannot continue this way. So now I'm, yeah. I'm very mindful of, you know, if my staff comes to me and says, hey, I'm having, I need a mental health day. Okay, take a mental health day. Whatever is left, we'll figure it out. So there's not a whole lot of pressure for them around yeah. like, oh, I have all this stuff to do, but I feel so bad. Can I leave or can I stay? Leave. Leave yeah. to take care Don't. of yourself. Like the work can wait please because <laughs> uh, then nothing's gonna be done well like exactly. <laughs> please go take care of yourself exactly. Exactly. on the subject of current events and taking time I also saw you I feel like I'm just stalking your Twitter thread but <laughs> I, I also saw you lament and it's kind of a lament that I had too was just about being unable to protest because of your condition and I just wondered how have you been finding other ways to contribute to the movement and feel involved even though you can't be with the masses physically yeah that really got to me because this is the first time that we've had a wide-scale uprising since my diagnosis Mm -hmm. and it wasn't Mm -hmm. something that I had been considering and not that Mm -hmm. If it weren't also a pandemic, <laughs> if we weren't also still in the midst of a <laughs> pandemic, I would have been out there. The fact that all of that is going on during a pandemic just made me honestly really sad. And I think it made me sad because I know that, you know, COVID-19 is disproportionately impacting Black communities in the United States and Latinx communities in the United States. And mm-hmm. so you know, the fact that that justice can't wait, even for a pandemic, just makes me sad about the state of this country. But beyond that, I am always a person who believes like, if I can't physically participate in a protest, like money is my next way. And so Mm -hmm. I've been quietly, usually anonymously donating. And then I feel like my greatest contribution or what I am tasked with doing is spreading information. And so Mm -hmm. offering Bitch as a platform to activists, to organizers, to people on all, well, not all sides, but all sides on the fight (laughs) for freedom. Uh, (laughs) Uh, They were good on both sides. (laughs) There was not, but, you know, to amplify the message and to allow them, like we're running stories about, you know, the eight to abolition campaign and, You know, what does it mean for Black death to become a spectacle, like really offering the space to people to amplify whatever message that they would like? I feel like that right Mm -hmm. now is my greatest responsibility. 
Yeah. Even my therapist was like, you just need to find like your role. And I think there's been yeah. a lot of memes about that too. Like everyone's got a role, <laughs> just file into your place. And it's been, it's been so hard. Cause yeah, I like you would have been right, right there with everyone. Like it's just so frustrating. And especially being in DC for me. I can imagine. <laughs> like this is yeah. monumental and I just feel so hopeless, but yeah, yeah, we do what we can do. What has your heart disease, your cardiomyopathy, what has it taught you about your body and about yourself? Oh, that's a great question. In terms of my body, I have long been on a journey of fat acceptance and in conjunction with that fat liberation. And so Mm -hmm. it has really made me grow a better understanding of how resilient my body is. You know, it really has been two years of my body. I don't even say three years of my body just getting beat up. Then I got hit by a car and then I had fibroids and then I had a myomectomy and then I got diagnosed with heart failure. And then I thought I'm better and then my right side failed and through it all, like my body is resilient. I still get up Mm -hmm. every day like my body has never failed me. And that Mm -hmm. has been a really great realization because it just shifts the way that I relate to my body, like less Mm -hmm. concerned with what it looks like and much more concerned with what it's able to do. And respecting, Mm -hmm. it's also made me respect the limits of my body. I was always a person who pushed, (laughs) pushed my body to the extreme. You know, I'm just gonna work for 24 hours straight And now I respect, you know, when my body says it's tired, it's tired and that's it. So I'm really respecting um, the limits of my body. And then in terms of myself, it has taught me that everything that I've gone through in my life up to this point, I genuinely believe has prepared me for this, Mm -hmm. prepared me for a moment in which like my body is not 100%. And that everything I've gone through, building relationships and extending grace to other people and being really vocal publicly about a number of different things and really building community has all come back to me tenfold. So it's just been affirmation to live my life in a way that's in service to other people because there is going to be a time like now where I'm going to need that back. And so it's just really Mm -hmm. good confirmation and affirmation to continue living in that way yeah on that point what's something that you hope people black women will take away from the sharing of your journey the sharing of your stories the sharing of the information that you provide yeah I would say first and foremost I want black women to know that they are not alone that if you've Mm -hmm. ever been overlooked or dismissed or mistreated by a doctor that that is a common experience and it's not an indictment of you as a person, that it's a systemic problem and that there are people in this world, myself included, who are committed to first amplifying it and then attempting to fix it. I also want Black women to know that there is no one in the world who can advocate better for them than they can. That when they go into a room with a doctor, that that doctor is not a better expert on their body than they are. And that even Mm -hmm. if they have to fight and push and see 
get second and third opinions that it is worth doing that work to save your own life. And lastly, is that I really want Black women to realize sometimes that even when it's uncomfortable, like sharing my personal journey is is deeply uncomfortable. As I've said, it sent me on many panic attacks in my day. But even Mm -hmm. within that, that there is value in sharing resources. So even Mm -hmm. when it, it feels embarrassing or uncomfortable, that just by simply sharing, you could be helping someone else realize, oh, that symptom is not normal, or oh, I need to get a different doctor, or this doctor should have treated me this way and treated me this way. Is there any recourse for that? Like the literal sharing of resources is critical Mm -hmm. to reshaping the medical industrial complex. Mm -hmm. There is some solace in the the panic attacks that we at least can fellowship and find each other through everything. Yes, agreed. Yeah. Okay, last stalker question. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought it was so good because you posted this picture and Mm. you were like, how do you know when you feel like yourself? Mm. And I think that's a really important thing. So I just wanted to know if you could share like when you know that you feel like yourself. And I think it's important that we don't always check in like I'm feeling off like Mm -hmm. this. This isn't me. So, yeah. How do you know when you feel like yourself? Now, when you ask me that question, I'm like, wow, that's a great question. <laughs> How do that's I know? a really great grounded question. You posed it, so I'm just throwing it back to you. But it was really, I thought it was really thoughtful. Like, you know, are you there? Like, who are you? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, I, and I wish, honestly, I wish more people asked themselves that question. Because then, mm-hmm. you know, if you know what your baseline is for when you feel like your best self, then you also know when something is off. And so right. I know that I feel my best self when I can wake up in the morning, get out of the bed, go through my whole morning routine, get dressed and still have energy. I'm like, oh, today mm-hmm. is going to be a good day. I feel like myself. Or when, yeah. you know, I have both depression and anxiety disorder. And so I can easily get just down about a number of things. You know, it could be something small, it can be something big. And then I'm just in a funk for two or three days or I'm having back-to-back panic attacks. I know that I feel like myself when something bad can happen and I'm able to keep going. That's when I'm Mm -hmm. like, okay, all this therapy has worked. I'm employing every tool that I have And I know that I can keep going. Like I'm not going to get mired in this one bad thing and forget all of the good things that have happened. And then Mm -hmm. I I always say that I feel most like myself in water. I love to Mm. swim. I am losing it. The fact that pools are not open, but I love to swim. I love to snorkel. I love being in water, which is one of the reasons why I think I love taking baths. But I feel like I'm most like myself (laughs) in water. I think the clearest. It's when I have visions of what my life could be. It's when I think beyond what I can see in terms of visualizing a life for myself. And so water is the place where I would say I feel most like me. I love that. That's so sweet. Yes. The last question I have, and I am always in my shows with this question, but it's just what brings you peace? And sometimes it trips people up, but just like what day in, day out brings you peace? What brings me peace? I 
as, as a part of therapy, have been keeping a gratitude journal because like I mm-hmm. said, one bad thing can go wrong and that's all I can think about. And something that consistently shows up day over day in my gratitude journal is family. Like my family, and I feel so grateful to say this, my family mm-hmm. brings me peace. My parents mm-hmm. who changed everything to accommodate my diagnosis bring me peace. My nieces who can sometimes rack my nerves, but ultimately <laughs> just being able to be to be their aunt to me is like the greatest gift in the world. And so they bring mm-hmm. me a lot of joy and a lot of peace. Mm-hmm. And then I would say books bring me a lot of peace. When I can, mm-hmm. and it doesn't happen as often as I, I would like it to, when I can shut off everything, like no TV, no phone, and just be with a book, it feels like the rightest moment in the world. Like the, like the moment that, that I work so hard to get to. And again, it doesn't happen yeah. as often as I would like it to, but right. when it does, it's like everything comes back into alignment for me. Beyond Ourselves is an original series produced and hosted by me, Taylor Camille. A variety of the series artwork shared here and on our Instagram, at Beyond Ourselves, are created by Carmen Johns and Sierra Hood. My hope is that these listenings have left you with a warm heart and an even cooler mind. I hope you are left feeling able to seek peace in the spaces and places you may find yourself in. If you're interested in being on the pod or have any compelling leads, please shoot us an email at info at beyondourselves.com and subscribe and share if you haven't already.